0: Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and another episode in our second series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. We showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. In this podcast, you'll hear from Jonathan Midgley, who came on the Hong Kong scene fresh out of English law school and made a quick name for himself by winning a notorious case that got his picture on the front page of the star, then Hong Kong's tabloid. His work took him to the down and dirty reaches of Hong Kong, where he learned the city's secrets and launched a practice that has made him today's go-to attorney for famous and well-heeled Hong Kongers in a jam. In this conversation, Jonathan shares his views on the relationships between Hong Kong and China and much more, including why some Hong Kong taxi drivers still yearn for the days of colonial Hong Kong. Now speaking of those colonial days, he says
1: Margaret Thatcher used to call it Toy Town. Did you know that?
0: I did hear that.
1: <laughs> i might have told you. She she used to she used to say apparently, oh, how are things in Toy Town? And you know, and I think she meant it. I mean, she was a big fan, apparently, uh, because, of course, it was a, a tremendous um, example of capitalism working. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it was toy town, really. It was a wonderful environment to grow up in uh, professionally and, and socially. And uh, the lack of politics was wonderful. I mean, for 15 years, I never heard the word politics.
0: That's Jonathan talking of the days when Great Britain ran Hong Kong and expats had a grand time.
1: It was a wonderful place. And of course, it was the safe haven from China, because in those days, China was very different. I mean, they're two different countries. When I came here in 1978, China was a dark place across the border. And it is nothing like it. I mean, it's a miracle. China is a miracle.
0: As to the new miracle China's place on the world stage, Jonathan says there is no question about its clout.
1: And so you've got these centers around the world, and China's certainly up there and may end up as the, uh, the daddy of all powers in the not-too-distant future because it's got the momentum.
0: As to where the West fits in, Jonathan says the Chinese are bemused and expressing anxiety. For example, in regards to U.S. government concern about China's aggressive action in the South China Sea.
1: But I don't think most Americans actually do understand China. And certainly the comments from the government of late about China seem to me to uh, not recognize the truth at all. Uh, the, the idea that they could, for example, the Americans could interfere in the South China Morning uh, South China Seas, if uh, China decides to uh, um, exert more influence there, seems to me laughable. Uh, in the same way, by the way, that if if um, the Chinese suddenly started to exert uh, influence uh, off the American coast, uh, that would be laughable as well.
0: As to the current state of politics in the United States, Jonathan says.
1: There is a sense of disbelief here that uh, uh, probably uh, is being felt uh, in America and certainly in Europe. I know that my many friends and family in Europe uh, uh, are all staggered by uh, what is going on in America, the United States. And and we recognize in in Hong Kong and in China, obviously, uh, the importance of America in the world. So when things get out of kilter as they are at the moment, uh, there is concern.
0: We talk about all this and why he looks to the Japanese to solve issues of aging populations, why the West shouldn't sit in judgment of the Chinese over human rights issues, the differences between America's handling of events in Ferguson and how Hong Kong dealt with the Umbrella Revolution demonstrations that went on for weeks, and more. Welcome, Jonathan, to Conversation 360 podcast and this episode of Asia and the West.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: So Jonathan, you've been in Hong Kong since 1978, is that right, wow?
1: The 23rd of February, 1978, 3.30, after, 3.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> and it was drizzling.
0: Oh, you're so funny. <laughs> well, your practice is, I, I, I know, primarily criminal defense work, and I know your work is highly valued, not only because you have such a deep understanding of Hong Kong, but also because your practice is really international. So over that period of time, you've witnessed not only change in the legal system, but you've been an eyewitness to what's referred by Hong Kongers and Westerners as the handover when Great Britain gave up its colonial rule of Hong Kong to the Chinese. By the way, I'm fascinated that mainland Chinese refer to it as the return. Is that right?
1: Possibly, yes. Yeah. I, I, I suspect there are different ways of expressing it.
0: So the handover was supposed to bring forth this one country, two systems concept. So how has that worked?
1: Well, again, it's going to depend on who you speak to. From my perspective, it hasn't been too bad, actually. Um, I mean, how many years in are we now? Fifteen or something. Yeah, uh, uh, the court system uh, remains uh, pretty well the same. I mean, there's a greater bias to the Chinese language, but that was inevitable. Uh, But there is still dual language. So English and Chinese are both official languages in the court. Uh, The judges seem to still uh, operate independently. There is a separation of the powers. And um, all in all, I'm pretty content uh, that the, the Arrangements that were entered into as far as the legal profession was concerned have been honored.
0: So, is Hong Kong still the place to be? Obviously, when you came there in 1978, you had views of what you hoped would happen with your life there. Are you still in love with life in Hong Kong?
1: Well, let me tell you, I came in 1978 actually more on a holiday. <laughs> it wasn't really, <laughs> it wasn't like I set out from England with great ambitions, although I did fancy a job here. And I very early on, it was rather interesting one that involved uh, a a Chinese lady and her husband who were we said, uh, grooming starlets for the film industry and the prosecution said otherwise, they were ladies of the night, I think is probably the polite expression. (laughs) A colourful start and it was a headline case. and, And I had this picture on the front page of what used to be called the star newspaper. And uh, so it was a colourful start. But yeah, I mean, it, the, the town then was very different indeed. I mean, it was small, relatively. Uh, it had a village feel to it in the centre. There was a sort of expatriate bit uh, that was central Hong Kong. And then the rest, which a lot of expatriates never saw, frankly. They never saw. Uh, but I did, because my work took me to the far reaches. And, uh, and so I saw the working side of Hong Kong. Uh, the sort of down and dirty bit, really. And, indeed, my office in those days was in Mong Kok, which was, you know, sort of in the middle of the uh, the peninsula. Sure. And, uh, and in those days, uh, I used to cross back and forward on the Star Ferry because there was no connecting uh, underground railway station, There as was the MTR. That was built later. So it was a hugely different city and a very different lifestyle. It was very difficult getting cheese and French bread and things like that, for example. That's not true today, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah it's truly so
1: an international
0: socially, city. Yeah. yeah, I was just saying, it's truly an international city now. You mentioned the star, and I think we don't, you know, the, the paper that no longer exists in Hong Kong. Um, right. But I think I mentioned this to you when I was there last time that I, I'm fascinated by what's happened with the South China Morning Post, which has been one of the mainstays of Hong Kong. It's now, what, hundred years old. Are you a subscriber to that paper? Do you read it?
1: Well, I got it for years and years. Then I stopped reading it because I I got... Well, actually, I stopped reading it because I was was in it personally a lot. And I got a bit fed up of reading about myself in relation to a particular case. And I cancelled it. And I didn't (laughs) read it for years. I didn't read it for years. And now I have it as an app on my iPhone, Mm -hmm. uh, along with The Guardian newspaper, The New York Times, and The London Times. So That's yes, I, read it. I okay. read it.
0: And so, do you have any thoughts about you? You know that Alibaba has purchased it, and I'm wondering what you think be the result of that. If you have any, well,
1: I, I, I really don't have a view. I mean, I think it's a reasonably well organised newspaper, as far as I can tell. It reports the news properly. Um, I, I don't know if you, uh, your president thinks that of the South China Morning Post, or whether he lumps that in with the rest of the dishonest. Uh, press, but in any event, as far as we can tell over here, the press is reasonably straightforward. They're often inaccurate, of course. I mean, when I, one of the reasons I didn't like reading about my own st- stories was the degree of inaccuracy. They are journalists are not prone, in my opinion, to being necessarily uh, terribly careful with the accuracy of their reports. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think
1: since you, People, yeah, CMP no, yeah, is no better than anyone else in that regard. But I don't, I don't notice it being political. I just think it's sloppy journal, journalism very often.
0: So since you brought it up, um, there are obviously new developments in the United States. And I'm curious as to whether you have a sense of what all this means for relationships between Asia and the West. We we often talk about the conversations that are taking place between Asia and the West What does that mean in light of recent developments, if anything?
1: Well, I I might tell you, uh, as we speak, I just got news a couple of hours ago that the San Francisco courts had uh, ruled, the appeal Court there had ruled that the government's uh, executive order was unconstitutional. So on a daily basis here, along with the rest of the world, uh, we are um, uh, transfixed by what's going on in the United States, and there's clearly a lot of interest. Uh, around the world it includes Hong Kong, it includes China, and actually, I was in I was in China recently in Guangzhou, and uh, and I was with some successful businessmen uh, having some uh, some supper, and I did ask what the, the Chinese you know these sort of educated people in China in China were thinking about the what was going on in the United States. And the people that I spoke to, one of the people I spoke to, sort of paused and gave me a wry grin. And he said, well, we're all extremely amused by what's going on in the United States. And uh, and I think that there is a sense of disbelief here that uh, uh, probably uh, is being felt uh, in America and certainly in Europe. I know that my many friends and family in Europe uh, uh, are all staggered by uh, what is going on in America, the United States. And and we recognize in in Hong Kong and in China, obviously, uh, the importance of America in the world. So when things get out of kilter as they are at the moment, uh, there is concern. There, of course, is concern.
0: So, you know, I, I normally start these conversations by asking what, when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean? And I think... As you just indicated, if right now it seems as if we're all sort of, as you said, transfixed by what's happening in the West in a way that um, is unsettling. Uh, so, so I want to just, if I can, move to in general, how accurate do you think the Chinese understanding of the West is and vice versa?
1: Okay, well, it's an interesting uh, question uh, that you asked Susan, because actually, just earlier today, I was um, on WhatsApp with a uh, person in the financial world here, who couldn't understand at all, how the courts could possibly overrule the president. Because in China, they don't have a separation of powers. So you know, if the president in China says something's going to happen, it happens. And, and and so this educated person who I was Conversing with in what the modern way what that one does now uh, by by texting back and forth uh, was absolutely uh, bemused at the notion that a court in America had just overturned an executive order, and um, so I suspect that that's fairly typical uh, of uh, the sense of wonderment that is uh, in this part of the world. They d- they don't really understand how it can be the way that it is with courts overturning a president and saying that he's unconstitutional.
0: That's so interesting, isn't it? Because that's how the president of the United States now feels as well.
1: <laughs> how, yes,
0: how dare they do that? But that- I
1: think- I think he'd fit very well into China, actually.
0: (laughs) I know why you say that. That's fascinating. And how about the other way around? How about the Western understanding of China? How accurate do you think
1: that is? Well, I think think you're going to have to split it into two, you know. I mean, I do think that Europe and America uh, see China a little bit differently. Um, And uh, I think that the Europeans generally... European parliaments, and the people, uh, well, some of the people, uh, understand that China is now a really serious uh, world player, uh, and that they are moving fast ahead uh, with their own style of government. Uh, And I know know that there was one report you may have read in the Chinese press, which ran something like this recently, Uh, look at America, and that's what they're suggesting we have here, uh, you know, we're actually doing quite well in China. We have a, a, a strong uh, economic growth. Uh, we're taking our poor out of poverty. Uh, and we, and you know, and we share some values with America. Uh, we both believe in the death penalty. <laughs> uh, where in Europe, of course, we don't. Uh, so in fact, uh, there are some, there's some, co- there's some common ground uh, with, between China and America. Uh, But I don't think most Americans actually do understand China. And certainly the comments from the government of late about China seem to me to uh, not recognize the truth at all. Uh, The the idea that they could, for example, the Americans could interfere in the South China morning, the South China seas if uh, China decides to uh, um, exert more influence there seems to me laughable. Uh, In the same way, by the way, that if if, um, the Chinese suddenly started to exert uh, influence uh, off the American coast. Uh, that would be laughable as well. But I mean, the, the South China Seas around the Philippines and the like seem to me an awful long way away geographically from America and their influence. <laughs> <laughs> but just passing thoughts Susan.
0: You're 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 so right about this. You know, and and now what about what about this recent slowdown of sorts in China? Has that had an impact on the business people that you deal with, um, is it really just a blip on the screen in terms of they still have a terrific GDP when you look at economic growth in general? Is there any real impact of that slowdown, or is it just a natural progression of All
1: right. So there's two two views on this. One is that uh, China is in a very uh, dire situation economically, and the other is that this is just a correction and it will go uh, merrily on. I don't know the answer to that. It's beyond my remit. I I really don't know the answer. But I can tell you this, that um, when the fat from the big goose doesn't splash into Hong Kong, Hong Kong feels it economically, and it's not splashing as it used to. Uh, I think that the umbrella movement, uh, a couple of years ago now, I suppose, uh, when you recall, the students came out onto the streets and paralyzed Central Hong Kong
0: because of their, their, their their push was that they wanted to have more of an opportunity for democracy that they felt that uh, Beijing was uh, uh, dictating who should be in leadership roles here was that that the one you're referring to
1: yes that's what I'm referring to and uh, the Chinese government didn't like that uh, and uh, there was a great deal of tolerance in, in Hong Kong by the way uh, I mean the authorities were very tolerant in allowing the roads in Central Hong Kong to be occupied and paralysed for weeks.
0: I remember I was there.
1: (laughs) it Never happened in New York. It would never happen in London. It was extraordinary. But anyway, the I don't think the Chinese government liked it at all. And I do think that they decided uh, that they would um, punish us a bit by sort of turning the taps off. So as I put it, the fat from the big goose stops splashing in and, and oiling the works here for a while. And, uh, and of course, the same thing happened to Macau, not because Macau misbehaved, but because the, the Chinese government became worried about uh, corrupt money being pushed through the casinos in Macau. So Macau felt the draft as well. So both Macau and Hong Kong, for different reasons, have uh, suffered a bit of late. But in terms of whether China will grow again uh, fast, or whether it's really got a damaged economy, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. If I was if you ask me to bet, which I know you will, Susan, of I'll course. bet that I think it's temporary and I think it'll power power on.
0: So that leads me to two questions, really. One was about the the vocal nature of what happened in that umbrella movement and how that's reflected in mainland China itself. Do you find that individuals do have more voice now about their concerns? It certainly seems like they've been fairly uh, quick to speak about pollution problems for example and the government seems to be paying some attention to that do they have to pick and choose their their issues in terms of whether they'll there be a crackdown or a censorship on them or is that recently loosened up
1: so you are talking about Hong Kong
0: well I was talking now about mainland China I know what happened uh, in Hong Kong I just wondered
1: Hong Kong, Hong Kong Hong Kong still has free speech clearly yes. it's very very free, actually. It means extraordinarily um, keen, the Hong Kong government, to show that, that free speech is still here. And it clearly is. Uh, in terms of mainland China, again, I don't know. I mean, it's such a big country, of course. I mean, it sounds a cliche, but it is. And it won't be the same everywhere. Uh, you know, different cities, different villages, different towns will have a different standard, I'm sure, about uh, the way in which their citizens can express themselves. Um, so I'm afraid, Susan, you're asking the wrong person. I don't get into China enough, or we'll have mm-hmm. enough knowledge of the way in which society works there to make a meaningful contribution. I think.
0: Well, then let's talk about um, the the whole issue of how Hong Kong uh, relates to mainland China, and whether now you've been there, as we said, yeah. some decades now. will and this could be the the recent um, the umbrella. What did they call it? The Umbrella Revolution? The Umbrella something? Umbrella, I think, was it? Yeah, I think so. Um, That was a little bit of a foretaste of China being able to to use its power. Is Hong Kong going to be able to keep its own independence? Or will it, in fact, gradually just become a very interesting, nonetheless, more... Uh, reflective of mainland China than it has been of its roots in the British Empire.
1: Okay. Can I just just be clear about this? The Chinese government didn't interfere at all with the Umbrella Movement. Right. So it, right. they flexed muscles over the border and, and, and altered stuff here. In fact, as I say, the degree of tolerance was extraordinary. But it's suggested by some that uh, China has since Perhaps been less of a father figure to Hong Kong because father isn't quite as pleased with its child at the moment. So a a
0: stricter father.
1: A a stricter father, you know. And uh, so, so, uh, so that was a point that I wanted just to be clear about because I think that the, uh, I mean, at the time, what was going on in the States? Because I was on television a couple of times about this for Bloomberg, and I made the comment that, was it Ferguson that was in the, the news at the oh, same yes. time? Oh, mm-hmm. yes. And, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the American uh, police, I don't think it is, is it, what's it, Home Guard, is it called when the police go in and beat up their own people?
0: National
1: Guard. National Guard, uh, when when they're in that mode, uh, went in with, you know, fair amount of force, didn't they? I don't think it was entirely... A benign uh, situation where people camped out for days in the street, uh, singing songs and being artists. And I drew that comparison that you know, while we was Hong Kong was in the news, and there were suggestions that you know that, that it turned. They turned water cannons uh, or pepper spray wasn't it here pepper spray I think here was't it mm-hmm. and you know but you know nobody was hurt and and uh, they stayed there for weeks and uh, I went down and visited as you, I think you did, I did. and it was I actually did. a very festive and gentle and thoughtful environment and and, and, and and so you know and I contrasted it because it was topical at the time when I was asked to in the media with Ferguson so I still think that Hong Kong, and, yeah, let's stick with Hong Kong. I was going to say China, with Hong Kong has this extremely benign, safe haven sense about it with people being able to express themselves. And I think that's going to go on, actually. I see no signs of that stopping.
0: Well, that's important because that's, that's really so key to Hong Kong as uh, enjoying the kind of really central role that it plays in that part of Asia. It's a fabulous place to be with the opportunity to travel just about anywhere uh, easily. So now, nonetheless, as you said earlier, when you when I when you assumed that I would ask you how you would bet on China's future. So it sounds like ultimately you do come out on the bullish side of China's ability to continue to grow and to prosper. Uh, on the world stage what's what's your biggest source of optimism about China's future not Hong Kong but China, mainland China itself
1: all right well the, the first thing is of course we're always talking uh, I suppose about time frames I have no doubt that China is going to be okay so I think the only question is will it take a while to recover from this blip you know it's still still got uh, growth of course it's just not as fast as it was before or 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 is it going to be um, in the doppeldrums for a longer period of time? Because it's got structural economic problems. Now, that's what I'm not sure about. But I am sure uh, that China is going to be on the world stage. Uh, I I mean, I think it is already a a serious um, uh, partner to being a major I don't I, I deliberately use didn't use the word competitor. But I do think it's a partner to the other major powers around the world. It's a partner to Europe as a major power, uh, uh, a Europe-less Britain in the sense that Britain's now diminished itself through Brexit, of course. Uh, it's a partner to the Americans. I mean, it's it, it's big enough now to say we stand shoulder to shoulder on many items, many economic uh, issues, uh, possibly military, I don't know. Uh, and then I suppose we've got to count uh, Russia in there as well as still being a major power, um, uh, And it's Russia's flexed its muscles a bit recently. And so you've got these centers around the world, and China's certainly up there, and may end up as the, uh, the daddy of all powers in the not-too-distant future, because it's got the momentum.
0: Well, it was very interesting to see that when Xi Jinping made his um, entrance, and his speech at Davos this year, which is the first time that he's been there. It was fascinating. Certainly to me, it seemed ironic that here we had uh, the leader of China speaking as the open uh, representative of the open global country that in fact uh, wants to take the lead or appears willing to take the lead on really big global problems like the environment.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So it could be that this is China's moment, especially if um, if countries in the West, like the U.S., decide to become much more nationalistic and uh, inward-looking.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: Which is, I mean, fascinating on a lot of levels. It, it it just seems to me that this is the century for collaboration. As you said, you used the word partnership. That seems like such an intelligent way to move ahead. Because most of the challenges are bigger than any country's borders, like pollution. Yes, um, I
1: agree. Yeah, absolutely. But and we, unless, unless there's some understanding between, we'll call them the major powers. You know, there's, there's the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans. Unless they can hold together and and, and and deal sensibly with the big world issues, then we are going to have a fairly uncomfortable ride ahead, aren't we? It seems to me, and. Uh, you know, there is scope because the Chinese the scope uh, for that because the Chinese in particular have stepped up to the plate, as you say, And I was actually funny, enough, I had a, I have a very good friend <clears throat> that's in the European uh, agency or one of the European agencies that deals seriously with climate control. Her job is to represent Britain uh, in the issue of, private, uh, of climate control. And I was told by her a, a year or two ago, that their main hope, the Europeans' main hope, as they saw it, those that were involved in climate control, was the Chinese. They were the ones that were most forthright. They were the ones prepared to take uh, charge and really try and seriously tackle climate uh, 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 pollution and its effect on uh, the climate. Uh, and uh, so that that was interesting. And uh, as I say, I think the Europeans probably have a warmer feeling towards China than the well, certainly the current uh, U.S. government seems to have towards China. Funny enough, the the warmth is towards Russia, uh, and the uh, slightly cold shoulder to China, which which uh, baffles uh, me and uh, perhaps people in Asia and uh, and Europeans, I think. So there is a different worldview out there at the moment.
0: So you, you mentioned pollution, which is a, a problem not just for, for, well, it's a problem for every country, really. What will other major challenges be to this uh, positive picture about uh, China's future? What what could get in the way of that?
1: Well, I hate to say it because it's... <laughs> That sounds like I'm bagging a bit on America, but given the current uh, uh, leadership and what they say about climate control, uh, the main impediment I would have thought to unity of purpose on the climate control front is probably the United States. I mean, if they, if, if President Trump is really uh, a skeptic in r- relation to the whole issue and thinks it's a Chinese, <laughs> uh, Chinese uh, plot to somehow uh, destabilize uh, American industry, then uh, that sounds to me like uh, a problem.
0: Yes, uh, that's understatement. Now, th- but climate aside, there are other issues that are particular to China, or at least oh. that they're, they're they have some concern. Healthcare, for example, age- yeah. an aging population. Any thoughts about those things, or do you do you think they'll 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 look at these problems seriatim and they will figure it out?
1: Well, I don't know if they'll figure it out, but I suspect they'll leave it late. And and I I think you and I perhaps had a conversation about Japan because Japan's demographics are the cutting edge, really, of a, a problem in an aging population. Indeed. And how yeah, so how the Japanese deal with this uh, will be a bit of a <clears throat> a litmus test for everyone else. Uh, I have a lot of confidence. I like Japan, and I have a lot of confidence in their society. Uh, and I'm rather pleased that they're dealing with the problem rather than another country around the world. I mean, they'll be very systematic in trying to deal with the issue. But it is a huge problem in terms of the drain on resources, because of course, as the older you get, the less work and the less productive you become, the bigger the burden for the rest. But you know, in that regard, there is an interesting statistic. I can't be specific about the statistic, but it, it runs this way: that the Japanese traditionally, uh, when they get very old and frail, they go up to the mountain top and they die. The people in the West uh, get frail, and we put them on life support, and we throw all our or a very large percentage of our medical resources. Uh, to keeping people alive another six months, very often in adverse circumstances, and then they die. So something like perhaps 60% of the budget goes into keeping the elderly alive for a few extra months when they're really dying. So um, the Japanese have a sort of inherent start if that traditional position for the Japanese uh, remains good. In other words, they don't throw all their resources in trying to keep people on life support, uh, perhaps unconscious, but at tremendous expense, alive for an extra few weeks or months. But in the, if the West continues with that uh, position, uh, they're just simply going to not—they're going to run out of money when it comes to care. and it's happening. It's happening in Britain, it's happening in Europe generally. It has a much more socialistic approach to health uh, than uh, hitherto the American. Uh, uh, people have uh, enjoyed or, or are going to suffer as a result of having it, I don't know. But in any event, uh, you know, with demographics changing around the world, with people growing older, it's a serious problem, serious problem, as is unemployment, which is another huge area for governments to tackle.
0: You know, you're bringing up Japan is fascinating to me because my understanding, I could be wrong, but I've been told that Japan has really already passed the point at which it could recover its population growth, that it that that it no longer can do that without allowing emigration into its country. Um, or
1: lots of Viagra.
0: Sorry, or lots for of Viagra, is that what you said? <laughs> no, but I I, I I don't know whether that whether that's even possible. I this was several years ago that I was listening to somebody who was a so called expert in this area who said that no, indeed yeah. it's not possible for Japan to, uh, to recover. To... At, and to be purely Japanese in the in the sense that they've always aspired to be and that they will have to allow uh, immigration in a way that has just not been part of their culture. So that's going to be fascinating. But I yes. and I think that is exacerbated the problem in China because of the one child rule so that we have very small groups of young people trying to take care of a lot of older people. So, yeah, we all have our problems and that's. That, th- those
1: are going to. The Chinese have relaxed the one uh, child rule, as you know. And they're, I know. they're
0: very yes. anxious
1: to get their growth rate up now.
0: But what I understand is that uh, young people who are of childbearing age are saying, hmm, I'm, now I'm not so sure that we really do need more kids. So they they haven't been sort of leaping up to the, uh, to the opportunity. So, so no. is, is there anything else um, you're always. So fascinating, Jonathan. Is there anything else, any other issues that you'd mention regarding this whole East meets West issue, something that you find especially interesting or fascinating to consider?
1: How long have you got?
0: I think we have a few minutes.
1: <laughs> no, I, was, I, I mean, I think there's all, I think the East and West has fascinated people for for donkey's years, hasn't it? I mean, it's always been interesting, you know. Uh and you know, travel west, young man. Um, and uh, and I remember when I first came out here, I was very young, and I just graduated as a lawyer in, from England. And uh, and I was just, you know, I, I actually had this image of um, sort of fairly low, uh, you know, not skyscrapers, but I had this image of sort of uh, Shanghai waterfront, nineteen uh, twenties look. So it was a bit. <laughs> It was a bit of a shock to me when I came to Hong Kong. There was all these uh, uh, tall skyscrapers. Uh, but from the moment I arrived, I thought it was. But well, Margaret Thatcher used to call it Toy Town. Did you know that?
0: I did hear that.
1: <laughs> I'd have told you. She she used to she used to say apparently, oh, how are things in Toy Town? And you know, and I think she meant it. I mean, she was a big fan apparently, uh, because of course it was a, a tremendous um, example of capitalism working. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it was toy town, really. It was a wonderful environment to grow up in uh, professionally and, and socially. And uh, the lack of politics was wonderful. I mean, for 15 years, I never heard the word politics here. That was very refreshing. Uh, nobody bothered about politics. Uh, we, were, we had a benign uh, state of affairs with governors. And uh, you know, I have to say this, I don't know if it's politically correct, or isn't, so I'll say it, but, uh, that an awful lot of people, I mean, I'm always hearing from taxi drivers, that they preferred it then. They preferred it when there was no politics and, and people laughed a lot and they had lots of opportunity. And there's something about the, the move into a political age that always seems to cause agitation. I'm sure, you know, you can't get it. of course, I'm not suggesting that we should all return to the, the old days. But it was a wonderful place. And of course, it was the safe haven from China, because in those days, China was very different. I mean, they're two different countries. When I came here in 1978, China was a dark place across the border. And it is nothing like it. I mean, it's a miracle. China is a miracle. And and um, And I'm always a little concerned when West, that's Europe and and the States, start to sort of keep imposing their own political view on China uh, and saying that they have uh, a terrible uh, human rights record. Because, you know, if you look around the world, there's all sorts of countries uh, that have human rights records that are, from one perspective or another, uh, bad. And, uh, and I often tease American friends about the body counts. I mean, you know, how many times have Britain and America actually gone into other countries around the world for whatever reason they think is good and caused death and mayhem? And yet they turn around and say, well, China has a bad human rights record. Well, you know, how often has China invaded other countries around the world in the last? No, I don't think ever, have they? So I have interesting conversations with both European friends and American friends, uh, uh, about uh, the position in Asia, which is really a rather peace-loving part of the world.
0: Yeah, and I think that comes as a great surprise to a lot of Westerners who, as you say, uh, not only have they not been to China, but they really don't know anything about it.
1: Um, uh, Of course, what we don't know, what we don't understand, we fear. And that's what you get. So you get some strange comments about China uh that are clearly uh tinged with concern and fear because they don't as you say they don't understand china they don't know what it's like
0: so what's the, what's the answer to all that how do we fix that
1: time and education and uh swapping uh, uh people uh, being allowed to travel from country to country in both ways uh, i mean uh, student exchanges uh, professional people exchanging ideas, uh, lawyers, doctors, uh, scientists, educationalists, mix it all up and make it uh, a world that understands each other. If you understand each other and, you, and you're and you prepared to have dialogue, you don't have wars, be they trade wars, economic wars, or indeed uh, hard old-fashioned wars. Yes. And the minute you start closing down being uh, isolationist, The chances, I'm afraid, it seems to me, of catastrophe by way of a war increase.
0: Oh, I so agree with you there, Jonathan. This sounds like a perfect place to stop our conversation, although I could certainly listen to you for a long time. Thank you so much for being part of Asia and the West and this Conversation 360 podcast. You're wonderful. Thank you.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's always great fun
0: talking to you. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.